Reading from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it, is, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Today we're beginning a new sermon series, and the sermon series will run six weeks in length and will be based on our mission as a church. We're asking the question, uh, why are we here? What is the purpose of Rockwell Prez? What makes us unique in any capacity compared to other churches in the area? And to answer that, we visit our mission statement, which is something we try to do every fall to remind ourselves who we are and why we're here, and what we intend to accomplish while we're here. And our mission, which uh, is printed in all of your worship guides, is to be transformed by the cross of Jesus by growing in community and cultivating our hearts to love God and others. Now, if you'll note, that mission statement can be reduced to three primary images, cross, community, and cultivate. That's intentional in part that it would be easy and accessible and memorable, but it's also intentional in the sense that if you boil down the New Testament and Jesus called the discipleship, we believe that's what you would have. The call to understand the cross and be transformed by it, the call to engage and grow in community, and the call then to cultivate your hearts for the purpose of loving God and loving others. There's not much of discipleship, if anything, that's left out after those three images. And so each week we're going to take one of those images and uh, spend two weeks on the image. The first week we'll consider the teachings of Jesus. And the second week we'll consider the teachings of an epistle to try to remind ourselves why we've arrived at these images and how they inform what we are doing. 
There's hardly a better place to start, particularly when we're considering uh, the cross in this uh, dialogue with Nicodemus. We might ask the question, what are we really talking about when we talk about the image of the cross? What do we mean when we take that idea uh, in terms of our mission and our life? Well, when John the Baptist and Jesus begin their ministry and begin engaging Israel, they both uh, make the call to the people of Israel, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it mean to repent? Well, first and foremost, to repent means to change one's mind. Means to see things in a different way. And out of that new vision, the actions and priorities of your life become reordered as a result of that changed mind. Now, for us in terms of cross, we believe that this happens first and foremost in the life of Rockwell Prez, both in worship and in RPC classes. This is where we engage our minds, we're confronted by the scripture, and we seek to have our visions changed as a result of what the cross is. And this is exactly what's happening for Nicodemus. Now, you'll notice that as we engage or enter into the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, Nicodemus thinks he has things figured out. He thinks he's in the know, only to have the tables turned on him in the midst of that conversation and for him to realize by the end, oh, I really don't have anything figured out. And Jesus has turned all of his priorities, all of his values, really upside down for him. How do we see this? Well, we're going to consider, we're going to follow the flow of the conversation, which is spectacular in and of itself, but consider first living in the dark, flesh and spirit, and then how can these things be, right? Living in the dark, flesh and spirit, and how can these be, these things be, which indeed is just the way the conversation goes in the context of John 3, 1 through 17. So living in the dark. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it's at night. And he probably comes with a group of Pharisees. It's a little bit hard to see in the English rendition because sadly in English, right, we don't make any distinction between a first person uh, or a second person singular and a second person plural. But what's going on is uh, in the context of our passage, it's referring to groups of people. So Nicodemus has probably come with a group of Pharisees that are sympathetic to Jesus. And Jesus probably has at least some portion of the apostles with him for this dialogue, even though Nicodemus and Jesus are going to be representative of the two sides. And Nicodemus shows up seemingly in the know. He begins, we know you are a teacher come from God. Listen, Jesus, we've come, we've shown up because we understand what's going on here. No one could do the things that you're doing unless they were actually from God. And so we know we have a very good idea of who you are. Finally, perhaps, Nicodemus would say, a prophet, a real prophet has shown up after hundreds of years of a real prophet not appearing on the scene. The irony is blatant. Nicodemus says, we know. Probably considers Jesus simply a prophet when really the incarnated God is standing in front of him and he has no idea. You'll understand this fully as we get to the end. Right? And what does Jesus say? The only one who knows, who knows, is the one who has descended. And there's only one who's descended. So Nicodemus, even though he thinks he knows, really doesn't know anything at all. And this irony is played out even more so that Nicodemus comes at night. Right? Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want it to be known. It will compromise his reputation. It will cost him too much amongst the Pharisees 
if he's seen interacting with Jesus. And so he comes at night. Now, do you get that? He just said, we know that you've come from God. No Pharisee has come from God. But Nicodemus isn't willing to invest so much, even though he acknowledges that he's come from God, that he's willing to come to Jesus during the day. He's only going to come at night. He's hedging his bets. He said, Jesus, you're interesting. I'm going to investigate and find out more, but I'm not really willing to sacrifice anything for you yet. For how many of us does that describe, in general, our faith? Jesus, I'm very interested in what you have to say, and yes, I believe that you're from God, but I would prefer to come to you at night because I'm not really ready to sacrifice anything for you. You don't live in a culture that's overt. Well, I mean, we could debate it, but you get what I mean. You don't face the same condition that Nicodemus faces, right? If Nicodemus is known to be uh, hanging out with Jesus, he will be immediately ostracized from all his uh, social and professional circles. You don't face that, right? And so that's not the kind of sacrifice that you think about. But when you are going through life, right, and saying that you follow Jesus, are you really just coming to him at night in the sense that you're not really willing to sacrifice anything? Yes, Jesus, I know I'm supposed to worship you with all of my heart, strength, soul, and mind, and I know I'm supposed to part with my own life, right, to lay it down and to pick up my cross and follow after you, but really, I don't want to do any of that, so let's just have a relationship where I show up at night and I don't really have to sacrifice anything on your behalf. That's where Nicodemus is, and that's where some of us are, right? in which Jesus is maybe interesting, and maybe promises something, but he's not something, he's not a person that you would throw your life in with. Nicodemus isn't there yet, but in a very beautiful way, he's going to end up there. All right, so hang on. Now, Jesus, in, uh, in a very Jesus fashion, is going to respond to Nicodemus in a way that doesn't necessarily address him at all, <clears throat> but changes, excuse me, changes the course of the conversation. Right? So if you look at verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a quick interpretive note on verse 3. The phrase there that we translate born again can be translated either as born again or born from above. And there's really no deciding factor to throw it one way or another. One way to look at this passage that I think is helpful is Jesus probably means born from above. But Nicodemus simply hears born again. And this is part of the confusion, but it, it highlights the main point of the story, which is the rebirth that Jesus is talking about is something that Nicodemus doesn't have the capacity to understand. Right? His mind has not been transformed right, by the cross yet. This is where all of us, of course, start. And Jesus says that that's exactly the situation. Right? One must be born from above in order to see. You cannot see the kingdom of God until you have been born from above. And of course, the not-so-subtle assertion is that Nicodemus is blind. He can't see the kingdom of God because he's not yet been born from above. Well, Nicodemus doesn't hesitate to tell Jesus that he's making no sense. He, uh, the conversation continues, and Nicodemus says to Jesus, uh, essentially, that makes no sense. How can an old man climb back into his mother's womb and be born again. That's absurd and ridiculous. Uh, Jesus, we're not sure what you are, are smoking. And uh, Jesus, uh, in reply, is going to start to uh, flesh this out for him. Get it? 
Flesh and spirit flesh this out for him. Okay. So if you look at verses 5 and 6, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now being born of water is being born of natural childbirth. Right? You think of a woman's water breaking in the midst of childbirth. And uh, being born of water is being born of the flesh. Right? Uh, Jesus is running two parallel comparisons uh, in terms of being born of water and born of spirit, born of flesh, and I lost that comparison as I was in the midst of it. Being born, uh, oh, be, it's the same. So being born of water, being born of spirit, and then um, existing in flesh and existing in spirit. Okay, he's contrasting these two different, different ways of being. And everyone who is born of natural childbirth, everyone who is born of water, is born into the flesh, which means you're born into a world that's ruled by the principalities and powers. It means that you're born into a world that's governed by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. This is what it means to exist in the flesh and to be in a world that is dominated by the characteristics of the flesh and not dominated by the power and authority of the spirit. This is a condition of all human birth since the fall, where we end up. Now, the reason that this is so scandalous and to get what's going on here, you have to understand, you have to hear this not from your perspective, but from the perspective of Nicodemus, right? Jesus shows up and he starts saying, flesh doesn't matter. Being born of the spirit is what matters. Wait, Nicodemus is a Jew. Being born of the flesh is everything. After being born of the flesh as a Jew, nothing really matters. So Jesus is saying, this thing that you think establishes your position before God, I'm going to throw that out the window. Which you can imagine Nicodemus is going to be uh, confounded to say the least, right? To be born, uh, a Jew in the first century would say, my greatest privilege was to receive the grace of God by what? By being born to a Jewish mother, by which I am Jewish and therefore part of God's favored people, and therefore subject to his special blessing. And Jesus says, no, that's not uh, actually what matters. What matters is being born of the Spirit. Now, on the one hand, we might expect that Nicodemus would be ready to hear this. Does not the Old Testament look forward to a time in which the Spirit will come and renew Israel? Make them alive again? Hang flesh on dead bones, as Ezekiel will say? And so in that sense, Nicodemus should have said, oh, Okay, maybe I, I see what you're talking about, but here's, here's the hang-up for Nicodemus and all Jewish groups of the first century. was that They all said, okay, we're looking down the future. The Spirit's going to come and make us alive again one time, someday in the future. But when is the Spirit going to do that? Well, he's going to show up, and it's only going to be for the righteous remnant. Right? Those who are particularly obedient and have earned the honor to be made alive again by the Spirit. Okay? So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, like all other uh, Jewish groups of that time, right? this is why the Pharisees were so serious about keeping the law and then adding laws to the law. And it's why they would say to their neighbor, say, why don't, you know, the Spirit would come if you would be obedient. If you would take the law more seriously, he would show up. This is, and this is why they're always rallying, and they're kind of the religious police of the first century, trying to get everyone to be obedient so the Spirit would finally show up and renew Israel. Now, Jesus shows up, 
And how much interest does he have in the righteous remnant? He prefers to hang out with those who are sick and who know they're sick. And for those who think that they've achieved the status of being part of the righteous remnant, he has pretty harsh words for. Hypocrites, right? whitewashed tombs, people who weren't ready at all for the work of the Spirit to be done in their midst. And this is Nicodemus, his hang-up. He can't possibly understand what Jesus is talking about as a result of his arrival. And it is a, a warning, right? A warning on a couple of different levels. One level would be this. Nicodemus is a systematic theologian par excellence of the first century, as were all Pharisees. And yet he can't accommodate for Jesus in the midst of his theology. And when our theology can't accommodate for Jesus, that should be a pretty significant sign that our theology is not lined up as it should be. It's also a way, though, in which Nicodemus believes that he can, he can control the Spirit. Right? This is what the Pharisees believe. By, as a result of our obedience, we will therefore pressure the Spirit. He will have to come and honor our obedience. Do we not sometimes act in such a way that we think we will manipulate the Spirit into operating on our behalf? You know, you watch your children grow up, and, and children and even adults to some extent basically have two, two ways in which to go to navigate life and to try to handle pain. One is achievement and one is contempt. So on the one hand, a child who might feel pressed down or not feel significant enough or if something painful happens, what do they say? Well, I'm going to be the best in something. I'm going to work all the harder. And as a result of my achievement, then I will be honored. Or in a different case, a child might say, all right, I'm hurt and my identity's shaken. What am I going to do? I'm going to demonstrate contempt, right? I'm going to point out how you failed. I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to kick you out of my social circle, right? And either way, it's a way of feeling powerful. It's a way of recentering ourselves in a very broken way. But it's also something that we employ our entire life with God, right? When we feel a little bit shaky in our relationship to Him, some of us go, by, okay, God, I understand you're not operating on my behalf. Well, let me achieve more so that you will be compelled to act on my behalf because of the great good that I do. And others of you, you feel like God is distant, you're frustrated with what he's doing, and what do you do? You demonstrate contempt. You say, God, you'll get my time when you show up. When you start to do something that I want you to do or treat me like I think you should, then then I'll pay attention. Until then, you know, I'm not going to say anything nasty, but I'm going to give you the cold shoulder, which is just a form of contempt. And this this is what Nicodemus, right? He thinks he can manipulate the spirit by virtue of his obedience. How do we fall into that same trap of thinking that we can manipulate the spirit either through our achievement or through our contempt? Holy Spirit, recognize my goodness. Or Holy Spirit, I'm not going to give you the time of day until you do what I want you to do. And of course, in either of these ways, we move away from God rather than throwing ourselves on the mercy of the Spirit and running into grace. And the fantastic thing, you just you can almost, as you read through this, you can hear Nicodemus melting down. Because finally, after uh, these two um, 
these two interactions in which also uh, Jesus will say the spirit blows where it will. It's not simply going to come upon you because you're a Jew. Right? Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Right? This is, I, Jesus, I really don't have any idea what you're talking about. How can it possibly be that flesh doesn't matter, that you have to be born of the spirit, and the spirit blows wherever it will? You mean my obedience doesn't guarantee the favor of the spirit? You're turning everything upside down. You're turning the Old Testament in many ways upon its head. What sense am I supposed to make of this? How can these things be? It's a great question. It's, uh, but it's not the, necessarily the right question. Because Jesus responds by saying, actually, Nicodemus, there's a better question to ask before how can these things be? And the better question is this. Who has the authority to answer the question how can these things be? Notice what Jesus says. We speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Right? So Nicodemus asks this great question. How can these things be? Jesus says, actually, you might want to think about who you are going to listen to. Who has the authority to listen to, to ask that question? And to, or, sorry, who has the authority to answer that question? Because you're not even listening to me when I tell you about earthly things. How are you going to hear me when I tell you about heavenly things? And what's this thing about ascending and descending? Well, can you think of anyone in the Old Testament who ascended to heaven? There are a few, right? I think of Enoch, Elijah. Now also, between the Testaments and the 400 years right, that happened before this time, the Jews would, um, Jewish heroes were thought to ascend to heaven. It's pretty popular, if you, like uh, the Maccabees, right? Jewish national heroes who fought against Rome, they would say, well, this person ascended to heaven as a result of his righteousness and obedience, his fierce devotion to God. So by the first century, you have the notion that lots of people have ascended to heaven. Right? Not lots, lots, but lots enough. And Jesus says, eh, it doesn't matter. They ascend, but they stay there. What matters is the one who's been there and come down. The one who's descended is the one who has the sole authority to speak of the kingdom that he's actually seen. Who's actually, he's actually been in the presence of the kingdom of God and now comes to reveal it. He alone has the authority. His voice is unique in the ability to reveal the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, this is the voice you had better listen to when you're asking these kinds of questions, Nicodemus, because much of the battle of your heart is indeed a question and battle for authority. Which again asks, makes us ask, do we, do we accord Jesus to have the authority? Does his voice have the authority to shape our life? Do we believe that there is one voice in the history of the world that has descended from the kingdom of God and therefore has the ability, the unique ability to tell us how can these things be? I've been convicted a little bit in thinking about that question this week. In one way, you know, I sometimes look at my life and think about how we approach the church and how, how eager we are to study and how, listen, study is so valuable. But the way sometimes we go about our Christian faith if you looked at the church and said, what must Jesus' ministry have been like? You would think, oh, it must have been a private gathering that happened once a week. And during the week, he gathered the apostles and they put, brought all their books and scrolls together 
and sat down and had a Bible study. And that was the ministry of Jesus. And they worked through the Hebrew lexicon to understand all the words and to understand the scripture. Does that sound like the gospel description of Jesus' ministry to you? Does it sound like the way Jesus describes his own mission when he comes to earth? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the poor and the oppressed will find liberty as a result of his kingdom that is revealed. And then do you suggest that you participate in that kingdom and are a faithful disciple when you do nothing to help the blind see or the deaf hear or the poor or oppressed to be set free? And what are we doing? We say Jesus' voice has authority. Does it really? Does the ministry in which you engage, does, if you put your life in a pie chart and you put all the ways in which you invest your day and your hours, right, does it really have a piece, a significant piece in which that looks like the ministry of Jesus. That looks like being the feet and the hands of his kingdom in the midst of our world. And this is something we have to grow in as a church, grow in as individually. If we think that redemption in the kingdom is simply us having a certain degree of knowledge and being in a good place and waiting for the, the kingdom to be revealed at our death or Jesus' return, man, I do not see much in common with that and the Gospels. And until we bring those into greater alignment, I think we're farther behind Jesus' ministry than we should be. And so if Jesus' voice does have authority, then we should heed again what he says to Nicodemus, right? The question still stands, how can these things be? How can they be? How can flesh not matter? How is one born of, from above? How do these things happen? Jesus references the story of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. The story goes that the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And because of all their complaining, God punishes them and sends a plague of snakes, and many die by their bite. So God says, well, I'm not going to allow all of Israel to die. Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on top of a pole, hold it up. Anyone who looks on the bronze serpent with faith will then be healed from the snake bite and be restored. <laughs> It's a crazy story. It's a story that we may even just kind of forget about. Except Jesus shows up and he says, oh, that story, that's my story. That's the story of the salvation of the world. Because the Son of Man will be lifted up on a pole and anyone who looks upon the Son of Man right, and believes in him will have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked upon that which afflicted them and were healed as a result of the act of faith on God's direction, we look upon the Son of Man who takes upon himself the sin of the world. Right? He who had no sin was made sin so that we might be made righteous. And as a result of looking upon him in faith, we then are healed. This is how it comes to be, Nicodemus. You look on faith, on God, who is willing in grace and mercy and love to be lifted on top of a pole and died so that you might be healed. And the conversation stops. Isn't that not incredibly frustrating? What, what were the next words out of Nicodemus' mouth? Where does the conversation go from here? Uh, we don't have it, but I think Nicodemus would initially say, uh, okay, that's really crazy. You just you walked off the edge, Jesus, because you've not only turned everything upside down, but you're now telling me that you, the Messiah, are going to have to be put up on a pole. And we all know what you're referring to. That's your death. And no, no expectation of the Messiah ends in the Messiah dying. 
And that's where John steps in in verse 16, and I think he anticipates John's question. I think he answers John's question as he proceeds to write, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus is right. Love doesn't make sense. It's not rational, but it is beautiful, and it's joyous, and it's winsome. And would you dare be loved today to the extent that Jesus portrays here in this passage? Love to the extent that the Son of Man would be hung on top of a pole, that by looking upon him in faith, you might be transformed, right? Not only saved, but transformed by the work of the cross. This is what's actually happening for Nicodemus as love cascades on him and he's going to watch the life of Jesus and slowly be transformed. One of the beautiful aspects of the Gospel of John is you get two tiny little glimpses of Nicodemus before the Gospel ends. You have this question, what happened to Nicodemus? In 750, there's an argument amongst the religious leaders and they're getting more and more angry at Jesus and you have this little pop-up Nicodemus, the one who visited him in the night, says, hey, don't we grant a fair hearing and trial to someone before we prosecute them? Nicodemus goes to bat during the daytime for Jesus. Drops off again. Then you get to 1950, and I'm sorry, 1939, and Jesus is dead, and he's, uh, he's headed to burial. And it says that Nicodemus, the one who visited him in the night, shows up with a massive amount of aloes and myrrh at great expense, to prepare his body for burial. The Nicodemus who was so afraid of what it might cost him that he would only visit Jesus in the night now shows up to prepare his Lord's body for burial. Not only at great personal expense, but at every social expense. Do you see? Nicodemus is transformed. Nicodemus' mind has been completely changed so that everything he held as a priority as a Pharisee, is turned upside down to the point that now he makes himself unclean by caring for a dead body to bury his Lord. It is the love of Jesus demonstrated in the cross, right, that has come upon Nicodemus and the Spirit has blown his way. Right, blown his way so that now he may see. And as a result of seeing, he embraces the kingdom. Nicodemus is an example of one transformed by the cross are you. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we marvel at your grace and your mercy. We marvel even at your willingness to to tolerate conversations that must have been utterly frustrating to you. Yet you do it in love, even though you know that you are headed to be hung atop a pole. We give you thanks this morning and pray that you you would forgive us for not heeding your voice as the one unique authoritative voice that should instruct all of our decisions. And we ask you to forgive us for the many times in which we would come to you in the night to get what we want out of you, but would be reluctant to visit you during the day. Would you please transform our hearts and our minds? Would you help us to be able to see 